You're listening to Tea with Tolkien, a podcast for the Hobbit at heart. Join us as we chat about the works and faith of J.R.R. Tolkien and strive to carry a little piece of Middle-earth into our own daily lives. This is the third in a seven-part book club series on The Lord of the Rings. These episodes will be released on the first of each month, now through March, to accompany our book club as we are reading The Lord of the Rings together. If you would like to join our book club, you can visit teawithtolkien.com book dash club. This month, we're discussing book three of The Lord of the Rings, which is the first half of The Two Towers. Today, I am drinking a lovely cup of tea while recording. It is a coastal cranberry spice herbal tea from Farmhouse Teas. It's an organic blend of hibiscus, cinnamon, lemongrass, cranberries, clove, and ginger. So it feels quite autumnal, but it's also almost has like a Christmassy feel to it. So I feel like it's a nice blend to enjoy all through fall and winter. You can learn all about farmhouse teas at teawithtolkien.com tea. Now, before we jump into the two towers, let's recap the events of the last chapter of the Fellowship of the Ring, the breaking of the fellowship. Chapter 1 of The Two Towers is actually depicted towards the end of the Fellowship of the Ring film, so I always get those two things mixed up in my head because I've read the book so many times and I've seen the movie so many times. Once you've read the books and seen the movie so many times, I feel like they all blend together, which is fine. In the end of book 2, Boromir has followed Frodo as he wandered away from the company and he ultimately tried to gain the ring from him. First, he was kind of trying to like sweet-talk him into it and being like, hey, we're buddies, why don't you just give it to me? But then after Frodo said no, then he kind of tried to force him to give it to him. You can hear this desperation in Boromir's voice. He's pushing and pushing Frodo until he ultimately snaps and freaks out. And then in desperation, Frodo puts on the ring to save himself from Boromir. So after he flees from Boromir, he decides that he is going to set off towards Mordor alone. So then he uses the ring a second time and tries to escape without anyone noticing. However, Sam finds him and they are able to leave together towards Mordor, and this is how the whole book ends. So now we are going to start with chapter one of book three, The Departure of Boromir. As this chapter opens, Aragorn is searching frantically for Frodo. Suddenly, the horn of Boromir is heard amongst shrieks of orcs, so Aragorn is scrambling towards the sounds, but then he finds Boromir and realizes he has come too late because Boromir has been pierced with many orc arrows and is laying there dying. Aragorn kneels beside him and Boromir confesses that he tried to take the ring from Frodo, and to atone for this act of evil, he has given his life in the valiant defense of the hobbits against the orcs. Aragorn comforts him and assures him of his victory and grants him peace. Boromir smiles as he breathes his last, and then Aragorn mourns bitterly for the loss of his friend. Tolkien writes, I tried to take the ring from Frodo, he said. I am sorry, I have paid. No, said Aragorn, taking his hand and kissing his brow. You have conquered. Few have gained such a victory. Be at peace. Minas Tirith shall not fall. He also tells Aragorn that the halflings were taken captive, though he doesn't think that they are dead. However, he doesn't specify which halflings, and he dies before he is able to. Boromir's final request was for Aragorn to go to Minas Tirith and save his people, but then Aragorn is conflicted because he knows he can't abandon the halflings and just, like, go off towards Minas Tirith when his friends have been captured by orcs. 
We might have noticed this theme of Aragorn's internal conflict towards the end of the Fellowship. It's only going to grow stronger over these next few chapters as he wrestles with his own self-doubt and self-denial. As Boromir passes away, Aragorn mourns bitterly for the loss of his friend. Tolkien writes that he knelt for a while, bent with weeping and still clasping Boromir's hand. This is an incredibly touching scene because in it we can learn a lot about the heart of Aragorn. Instead of responding in anger or bitterness, he offers Boromir forgiveness and hope in his final moments, and then he weeps even after his death. So this is all a very human chapter, because before it might have felt like Aragorn was some kind of distant, mysterious, and yet kingly character, we can see like his humanity is on full display. It's also worth mentioning that Aragorn doesn't tell Legolas or Gimli about Boromir's failure or his attempt to take the ring at this time. So he kind of just allows everyone to rest with the memory of what they knew Boromir as. So after this, Legolas and Gimli find Aragorn and they discuss what their next step should be. They've really got three options. Should they seek for the ring bearer since they aren't sure if he was taken captive? Should they immediately pursue the orcs or should they travel to Minas Tirith? Aragorn says an evil choice is now before us because really no matter what they do, it might all go wrong. They find the knives of Merry and Pippin among the weapons of the fallen orcs and they decide to carry them along with them in hopes of returning them to their original owners. Because they're unable to offer a proper burial for Boromir, they tend to his body and then they send him down the river Anduin with his helm, his horn, and the weapons of his vanquished enemies. As they're kind of going through the dead orcs, Aragorn is pointing out that some of the orcs are from the Misty Mountains and then others are strange to him and they kind of figure out that these are servants of Saruman. So a lot of crazy stuff is going on and they're not totally sure, but they're kind of putting the pieces together. Finally, Aragorn discerns that Frodo and Sam have gone together towards Mount Doom and so then they have to decide whether to follow Frodo and Sam or Merry and Pippin. Aragorn ultimately decides that they should follow the orcs because he can't abandon the halflings to torture and death. Tolkien writes, I would have guided Frodo to Mordor and gone with him to the end, but if I seek him now in the wilderness, I must abandon the captives to torment and death. My heart speaks clearly at last. The fate of the bearer is in my hands no longer. So now they have finally made up their minds about which path to follow, and they pursue the orcs swiftly. Tolkien even goes so far as to describe Aragorn springing away like a deer, which is um, an adorable thing to imagine. This whole chapter, Aragorn is lamenting that all of his choices have gone wrong, and he's struggling to make the correct decision now. Without Gandalf, he has taken up leadership of this broken fellowship, and we can see what a heavy weight it bears on his shoulders. He says, with hope or without hope, we will follow the trails of our enemies. Chapter 2, The Riders of Rohan. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli pursue the company of orcs and cross into the land of Rohan. They come across a group of slain orcs and guess that they were slain by other orcs and that there was some kind of argument between the two groups. Aragorn then finds a hobbit's footprints and the brooch from one of their elven cloaks, which brings them hope. However, even as they continue on in their pursuit, Aragorn is still feeling kind of down on himself, and he even goes so far as to say to Gimli and Legolas, You have given the choice to an ill chooser, said Aragorn. Since we passed through the Argonoth, my choices have gone amiss. So he's really having a hard time. Nevertheless, they run swiftly and vigilantly, although struggling against weariness, loss of hope, and uncertainty. However, uh, one fun thing is that they are strengthened by Lembus. Tolkien writes, Often in their hearts they thank the Lady of Lorien for the gift of Lembus, 
for they could eat of it and find new strength even as they ran. Eventually, though, they do fall behind because the orcs have a speed that they are unable to match. After several days' pursuit, they are met by many riders. Um, these are men of Rohan, the Rohirrim. Here we are introduced to Eomer, son of Eomund, third marshal of the Rittermark. At first, they have like a tense introduction and um, everyone's kind of like trying to see who's who and they're, no one's being very friendly. But once Aragorn reveals that he is the heir of Isildur, etc., uh, Eomer's demeanor changes. Eomer tells Aragorn that they destroyed the company of orcs, but they didn't see any halflings among them. Eomer also tells Aragorn that Gandalf had come to them and warned them about Saruman, but that Theoden had disregarded this warning and he had treated Gandalf with contempt, which was weird for Theoden to do. So obviously something's fishy. Eomer insists that they go with him to Edoras according to their law, but Aragorn eventually talks him into just letting them go, and then Eomer gives them horses for their journey. During this exchange, Eomer laments the changing of the world and how everything is just so crazy and weird these days, and he kind of is wondering aloud how anyone can know the right choice to make, to which Aragorn offers some incredible advice. He says, Good and ill have not changed since yesteryear, nor are they one thing among elves and dwarves and another among men. It is a man's part to discern them as much as in the golden wood as in his own house. I also loved um, in this chapter, anytime Galadriel is mentioned, Gimli gets extremely defensive, um, and I think it's incredibly sweet. After this, they ride on and come towards the end of the forest, and they ultimately enter into Fangorn, despite being very nervous about it. And this reminds me a lot of way back in the Fellowship of the Ring, the old forest. So we've got another suspicious forest that we're coming into. They get to talking about Gandalf, and there's one quote that I wanted to pull out and discuss a little bit. Tolkien writes, But Gandalf chose to come himself, and he was the first to be lost, answered Gimli. His foresight failed him. The council of Gandalf was not founded on foreknowledge of safety for himself or for others, said Aragorn. There are some things that it is better to begin than to refuse, even though the end may be dark. And like, this is a great quote. I thought it was um, definitely worth like pulling out and just reflecting on, so maybe we could discuss that in the Discord. That evening, Gimli is given the first watch as everyone is going to settle down and take a little rest. However, he is startled because he suddenly sees an old bent man leaning on a staff and wrapped in a great cloak. His wide-brimmed hat was pulled down over his eyes. The man disappears, along with their horses, too, and so they're not quite sure what happened, but everyone's a little bit spooked. There is some debate over whether or not this man was Saruman, but Aragorn points out that Saruman was said to travel as an old man hooded and cloaked, and this old man was wearing a hat, so definitely couldn't be him. And <laughs> for some reason, I just thought that was hilarious. They're like, no, no, this guy had a hat on, so he's definitely, there's no way it's Saruman because Saruman doesn't wear hats. Chapter 3, The Urukai. This chapter is largely told from Pippin's point of view. This chapter is kind of a drag and not my favorite because it's so sad and like wearisome, wearying. Ugh, makes me tired just thinking about it. So Pippin recalls being besieged by orcs and wondering why they aren't trying to fight back because him and Mary are like, you know, trying to fight them, but the, the orcs are really only interested in taking 
himself and Mary captive. He recalls seeing Boromir fighting the orcs valiantly, but then after that he doesn't remember anything else. The next thing he knows, he's lying bound amongst a great company of orcs with Mary beside him. Over the next several days, Mary and Pippin are treated cruelly by the orcs as they are brought towards Isengard. There are two groups of orcs who have converged. One is sent from Isengard with the task of obtaining the halflings and returning them to Saruman, and then the other has come from the mines of Moria with the intention of avenging their folk. The two main orcs we see named in this chapter are Ogluk, who is the commander of the Urukai company from Isengard, and Grishnak, an orc of Sauron. The orcs are rather upset because they are being pursued by the riders of Rohan, who they refer to as horse boys, which I find hilarious. There's also a part where some of the northern orcs are arguing with Ugluk about how they can't run in the sunlight, and he replies, run or you'll never see your beloved holes again, which I think is interesting because it implies that orcs actually, one, have the capacity to love something, and two, I think it must mean that they live in holes. And so the whole, um, this really just opened up a whole bunch of thoughts for me about what orc living conditions are like, what other kinds of things do orcs love, like what is a, a the daily life of an orc like when they're not at war. So um, that really just sent me on a whole mental tangent. Ultimately, many of the northern orcs defect from the greater group as a whole, and then the whole expedition is just generally very chaotic as orcs do not seem to have much loyalty or military organization. There's another bit where the Nazgul are mentioned, and I found it quite interesting. Ugluk says, What happened to your precious Nazgul? Now, if you'd brought them along, that might have been useful, if these Nazgul are all they make out. To which Grishnak replies, Nazgul, ah, all they make out. One day you'll wish you had not said that, which I just thought was delightfully ominous. Finally, the men of Rohan come upon the orcs, and they all await for the beginning of battle. Eventually, Pippin realizes that the orcs think either he or Mary might have the ring, and then he basically begins to impersonate Gollum and tries to convince Grishnak to untie their legs. Um, all of this is kind of bizarre, but I really appreciate the way that they tried. This unfortunately angers him, and then he carries them away from the rest of the company. Grishnak intends to kill the hobbits rather than allow them to be captured, but he is slain by one of the Rohirrim before he is able to. Finally, the hobbits are able to escape and flee into the forest, but not without having just a little bit of Lembus first, which is um, very smart of them and very hobbit-like. From a safe distance, the hobbits stop to watch the battle in which the Rohirrim overtake the entire company of orcs, and after the battle is over, they burn the bodies of their enemies. One thing about this chapter that always stuck with me is the way that Pippin feels completely useless, like nothing more than baggage. And it's so sad, and yet it's something that can be very relatable at times for all of us, I'm sure. Sometimes we might feel like we aren't contributing or doing anything worthwhile, um, and maybe we're just like in the way. And yet, as we keep reading, we're going to learn about all of the great and valiant deeds of Peregrine Took in Mariotic Brandybook. And despite feeling incredibly discouraged along the way, Pippin does manage to drop his elven brooch in hopes of leaving it as a sign to anyone who might be following them. Even though he's honestly very hopeless, he doesn't think anyone is following them. Um, 
but just just in case he's going to do this. And this small act of faith, in turn, fills Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli with a renewed sense of hope, and it gives them a reason to continue their pursuit, as we saw in the last chapter. Yet from the perspective of the hobbits, all hope for their lives is lost. And if they weren't already feeling hopeless, they're continually discouraged and bullied by the orcs, to be honest. They say stuff like, little people should not meddle in affairs that are too big for them. But even in Pippin's despair, a gleam of hope prevails, and instead of giving up, Pippin did what he could to work towards escape or rescue. And we'll see this as we keep reading, but it's just these little steps. When all hope feels lost, the characters just, even if you can just take one small step, do one tiny thing, it's going to keep you going, and it's going to keep the story moving ahead, and it's going to keep um, hope alive. I guess that chapter wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Chapter 4 Treebeard. Merry and Pippin escape from the orcs, only to find themselves lost in Fangorn Forest. There they are met by Treebeard, which freaks them out pretty much, and they learn that he is an Ent, and eventually, after they convince him that they aren't orcs, they are taken into his care. Treebeard famously says, Do not be hasty. That is my motto. Treebeard is an incredibly lovely character, and I noticed a lot of things about him this time reading that I had missed before. The way that Tolkien writes his voice is so unique and lovable. He's so old and so cranky, and yet he's also very soft-hearted towards the hobbits. He's very grandfatherly, in my opinion. He tells the hobbits a great deal about the forest, the Ents, and Saruman as they travel with him, and after a lot of discernment, the Ents finally decide to march against Isengard, and the hobbits are able to witness the great strength of the Ents, which is just awe-inspiring. We are also introduced to the idea of the Entwives and the Entings. Though they are all lost, Treebeard makes sure that we know that they aren't dead. This is another thing kind of like Tom Bombadil that Tolkien really leaves unanswered. So I'm looking forward to our discussion of the Entwives in the Discord chat. In Treebeard's description of Saruman, we see this correspondence between his disregard for nature and the darkening of his heart. Saruman, who had once walked among the forests of Fangarn, and had been like a friend to Treebeard, has forsaken the natural world in order to gain power and dominion. Treebeard describes Saruman as very quiet to begin with, but his fame began to grow. He is plotting to become a power. That's a power with a capital P, so that's a big deal. Treebeard also says he has a mind of metal and wheels, and he does not care for growing things, except as far as they can serve him for the moment. And this all contrasts sharply with Treebeard's own motto of do not be hasty. So Treebeard is very slow moving and he almost demands patience. And yet Saruman is someone who, like a toddler, is severely lacking in patience. So you can see how they wouldn't quite get along. A common theme of Tolkien's writing is the machine. He often reflects on the difference between magic of the machine and the enchantment of nature. The magic of the machine is brought about by manipulating someone's surroundings, seeking to speed things up um, or create strength over others, dominion, this whole ultimate goal of domination. Enchantment, on the other hand, is a natural, beautiful kind of thing, and it, it works alongside nature instead of manipulating nature. It seeks to guide or counsel things instead of, um, instead of changing them to their own will. It's like with enchantment, you're kind of trying to elevate things to how they were meant to be, where with magic and the machine, it's like you're 
kind of twisting them and, and contorting them to however you want them to be versus how they should be, if that makes sense. Saruman's descent into evil seems to coincide with his disconnection from the natural world, as I said earlier, and his growing desire to manipulate it. Saruman's story can be a cautionary tale for all of us who hold positions of power or authority, so I think it's important as as we continue to go on in our lives to continue like to not forget about the outside world if you're like at work all day just to breathe some fresh air outside and to remember the way that nature works outside of our like society if that makes sense i don't know maybe i'm just rambling whatever chapter four no 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 chapter five the white rider aragorn legolas gimli the whole bunch, are left in Fangorn, horseless and rather startled over the appearance and disappearance of this mysterious old man with a hat, so he could not be Saruman, obviously. However, they're pretty sure he's Saruman. In the morning, they resume their search for any trace of the hobbits and ultimately find a bit of news. They find a malorn leaf with a few crumbs of lembus remaining, as well as some cut cord laying nearby. From this, they discern that at least one of the hobbits has escaped from the orcs. Aragorn is beginning to put together a more complete picture of the motivation behind the orc attacks and the capture of the hobbits, so he's kind of you know, piecing it together. As they continue through the forest, they find even more signs of the hobbits, and at last they are met again by the old man and finally learn his true nature. It's Saruman! I'm just kidding. It's Gandalf! However, he's changed. No longer Gandalf the Grey, he is Gandalf the White, resurrected with the greater purpose and power he has returned to middle earth um to finish his job gandalf recounts his fight with the balrog his death and his return to middle earth tolkien writes at last aragorn stirred gandalf he said beyond all hope you return to us in our need what veil was over my sight gandalf gandalf is super happy to see them and he says be merry we meet again at the turn of the tide the great storm is coming, but the tide has turned. So this chapter brings a lot of hope. Gandalf also says something rather curious worth pointing out. He says, Indeed, I am Saruman, one might almost say, Saruman as he should have been. So this is another good quote for a discussion. After all of this, the whole group is strengthened and encouraged, and together they are going to go towards Rohan. Chapter 6, The King of the Golden Hall after a difficult and long journey, the company comes to Rohan, seeking to speak with King Theoden. Gandalf bids them to draw no weapon and to speak no haughty word, to be wary in Rohan, because things have changed and it's not quite normal there anymore. As they approach the gates of Edoras, they are met by guards who speak rather harshly, saying that none should enter unless they are friends of the king or speak their tongue. Conveniently, though, Gandalf speaks their tongue, so no problem. Aragorn asks about Eomer because, you know, he had just seen him a couple days ago, but the guard doesn't have any news of him. The guard also mentions the name of Wormtongue, which seems to upset Gandalf, so we'll see what that's all about. Eventually, the company is allowed to pass through the gates, but they are asked to leave their weapons at the doors of the hall, even Gandalf's staff. Aragorn is reluctant to relinquish his sword, but Gandalf talks him into it. Though Aragorn tells Hama, the door ward of Theoden, Death shall come to any man that draws Elendil's sword, save Elendil's heir. To which, to which Hama is like, oh, oh my goodness. Okay, I won't touch it, I promise. Hama also allows Gandalf to bring his staff into the hall against his orders. 
which obviously is going to make Wormtongue pretty mad. Gandalf, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas step into the Golden Hall, where they feel pretty uneasy and unwelcome. They soon understand that Theoden is being influenced by the advisement of Grima Wormtongue, who has encouraged Theoden to turn against Gandalf's counsel, and he's clearly working for Saruman. Gandalf casts aside his cloak and rebukes Wormtongue. He raises his staff and Wormtongue throws himself to the ground. Gandalf then calls Theoden to rise from his chair and to breathe the fresh air outside of his hall. Theoden, it seems, is coming back to life after a long and troubled sleep. It's also in this passage that we are introduced to Eowyn for the first time, one of my favorite characters. Tolkien writes, Thus Aragorn for the first time in the full light of day beheld Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, and thought and thought her fair, fair and cold, like a morning of pale spring that has not yet come to womanhood. Theoden is discouraged by all of the ruin and impending war that surrounds him, yet Gandalf is incredibly encouraging and offers him words of comfort. He says, Not all is dark. Take courage. Too long have you sat in the shadows and trusted to twisted tales and crooked promptings. Doom hangs still on a thread, yet there is still hope if we can but stand unconquered for a little while. Gandalf then gives Theoden a bit more counsel, urging him that all friends must gather together in the face of the storm. Theoden then releases Eomer from prison, where he had been held at Grima's council, and commands Grima to bring him back his sword. Gandalf says, uh, Gandalf recommends that Theoden should evacuate the women and children from Edoras and prepare the men for battle. So after returning to himself, Theoden recognizes how badly Grima had deceived him. It's almost like it's almost like you're in a room that's dimly lit, and so you can't see the mess. But then suddenly someone turns the light all the way up, and you're like, oh, oh my goodness, like this is a mess. It kind of is how it felt to me. However, instead of being like vengeful with Grima, Theoden is still merciful towards him, and he offers him the chance to prove himself trustworthy by coming along with him to battle. Gandalf then calls out Wormtongue for being a servant of Saruman, and then Wormtongue spits before the king's feet and flees. Theoden laments that he was so blind to Wormtongue's influence, and he thanks Gandalf for his help, and at the end of this chapter, the men of Rohan are preparing for battle. A rekindling of hope is a major theme of this chapter, hope beyond all hope. Gandalf has returned to Middle-earth beyond all hope, and he brings with him a renewed sense of strength and power, saying he is now how Saruman should have been. It's almost like, it's almost like everything Gandalf touches it is given a renewed sense of hope. He immediately frees Theoden from the council of Saruman's influence, and he calls him to arms. It's as if the clouds are parting for a moment, and all around Gandalf can see with such clarity in this chapter. So Gandalf is, is not messing around. He's here to help, and um, people have just been sitting around for a bit too long, so it's everyone needs to like get up, let's get moving. Chapter 7, Helm's Deep. The company rides towards Helm's Deep along with the men of Rohan. Along the way, Gandalf urges Theoden to continue on towards Helm's Deep, but that he must leave them for a little while. Even as Gandalf leaves, the men of Rohan murmur amongst themselves, saying that, get this, Grima would have had an explanation for this. Hama, however, seems to put a bit more trust in Gandalf than the others do. So, ugh, even, even after everyone realizes how nasty Wormtongue was, the men are still like, well, this is so weird, but Grima would have been able to explain it. And it just shows like how deep everyone was under his influence, which is so gross to me. 
The riders came towards Helm's Gate and the Hornburg, which was this great stronghold at the mouth of Helm's Deep, where Erkenbrand, master of Westfold, dwelt. However, nobody has heard any news of him and they can't find him. Meanwhile, their scouts report that wolf riders and orcs are on their way to Helm's Deep as well, and then they hear a harsh singing and see the lands and homes being burnt behind them. The riders come to Helm's Dyke, where Gamling, an old man and leader of those who watched the dyke, tells Theoden that the women and children have been gathered into the caves of the deep. Finally, everyone comes to Helm's Deep and they prepare for battle along the Hornburg and the barrier wall. At last, the battle begins as hundreds upon hundreds of orcs pour over and through the breach. Now, here we have a whole bunch of battle, 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 battle. Um, I'm just, you can just read it for yourself if you want to know all the details. Orcs creep over the culvert and into Helm's Deep, weakening their defense. And this is where everything's starting to go downhill. I'm also delighted um, to remember that Gimli and Legolas counting each of their vanquished foes is a book thing. Because when you're seeing the Two Towers movie, it seems so goofy that I had originally thought that Peter Jackson just added in this little bit. But nope, this isn't the book. They're counting each other's foes and it's kind of like a little competition and uh there's also a little bit where Gimli and Legolas have become separated and Legolas is so concerned for Gimli and I just think it's very sweet because their friendship is so unique among all the peoples of Middle Earth and so I love how Tolkien keeps highlighting that. So as the battle is going on it's not looking good the men of Rohan are growing weary the deeping wall has been taken and many of the men of Rohan are retreating then the orcs have brought some kind of new devilry from Orthanc. As the battle quickly grows out of control, everyone is beginning to feel this sense of futility and people are becoming very discouraged. Theoden is becoming very depressed and restless, feeling boxed in, so he decides to ride forth and Aragorn says he'll go with him. As dawn is coming, Aragorn goes out and stands above the gates. Tolkien writes, I looked out to see the dawn, said Aragorn, and then there's the Urukai down there. That's who he's talking to. What of the dawn, they jeered. We are the Urukai. We do not stop the fight for night or day, for fair weather or for storm. We come to kill by sun or moon. What of the dawn? And then Aragorn responds, None know what the new day shall bring him. Get you gone, ere it turn to your evil. Aragorn is commanding them in this very kingly way. We can see that he's like coming into his own kingship and, and his authority, and I love it. After this, the gate falls and Aragorn runs to the king's tower. So we have this like super triumphant moment and then like boom, that's over. So Theoden is riding forth. There's great trumpets going and he's riding out even though it's not going well until suddenly a rider appears clad in white shining in the rising sun. Everyone is like, it's Gandalf, whom they call Mithrandir. And he has brought with him Urkenbrand and a whole host of fighters. After this, the battle is quickly won as their foes fall to their knees, run fleeing, etc., etc. Um, but I just think this is great. The way that Theoden rode forth despite having no idea that Gandalf would return is very touching. It emphasizes what a good king he really is because he was just doing the best that he could with the knowledge that he had despite not knowing that any help would come. Another discussion question for the Discord is, do you think that Aragorn knew Gandalf was coming back and that's why he was kind of taunting the orcs and, well, not so much taunting. He was more of like charging them like and giving them one last chance. Like, you guys should stop this for your own sake. 
so do you think that he knew Gandalf was coming back or do you think he was just giving them counsel in general? I would love to hear all of your thoughts. Chapter 8, The Road to Isengard. The Battle of Helm's Deep has been won, so that was great. Everyone um, is saying like, oh, Gandalf, that's so great that you came unlooked for. And then Gandalf is like, unlooked for? I told you I was coming back, which I thought was very funny. And they were like, yeah, 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 we knew. I mean, you said you were coming back. We We didn't know when. Um, so that was just funny. After the battle, the men are gazing in wonder at both Gandalf and the woods, which have obviously changed, and everyone is wonder- wondering why. Gandalf says that he'll tell Theoden what happened and what's going on if he comes with him to Isengard. The men of Rohan rest and clear the battlefield of the dead and injured, and, um, you know, there's kind of like a somber tone to this part of the chapter. And afterwards, many men journey with Gandalf, including Theoden, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, of course, and they travel through Fangorn, where the men of Rohan are surprised to witness the Ents for the first time. Theoden and Gandalf are speaking as they walk, and I wanted to read this little passage of their conversation. Tolkien writes, Yet also I should be sad, said Theoden, for however the fortune of war shall go, may it not so end that much that was fair and wonderful shall pass forever out of Middle-earth? It may, said Gandalf, the evil of Sauron cannot be wholly cured, nor made as if it had not been. But to such days we are doomed. Let us now go on with the journey we have begun. So it's kind of like a, definitely a sad thing. And yet there's a sense of duty and like, this is the time we've been given. And these are the tasks that we have at hand. We need to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. They enter the land of Isengard and they find it deeply industrialized. The grounds are tilled for miles and miles, and many small homes have been built for workers or slaves, yet despite this, the land is abandoned and damaged as if by some great storm. As they near the gates, the men are again surprised to see something they've never witnessed before, hobbits. Up until this point, the men of Rohan thought of hobbits as um, some kind of like fairy tale or legend. They are greeted by Merry and Pippin as they lazily sit beside the gate, enjoying a few well-earned comforts. The hobbits explain that Treebeard has taken up management of Isengard, and at this, Gandalf and Theoden leave to find him. Chapter 9. Flotsam and Jetsam. One thing that I love about this chapter is that Tolkien gives us a date. So this chapter happens on the 5th of March. And I don't want to uh, give any spoilers, but if you know what happens on the 25th of March, I thought that was really neat because this puts it into perspective. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli stay behind with Merry and Pippin as the others leave to consult with Treebeard. These members of the Fellowship spend the bulk of this chapter recounting their stories of what's happened since they were last together and putting together the pieces to form a fuller account of what's been going on in regards to their quest and each other's lives. The majority of this chapter is spent amongst old friends as they eat, drink, smoke, and recount their stories to one another. They gather in one of Saruman's abandoned storehouses where they find plenty of food, drink, and even pipeweed. And not only does Saruman keep a stash of pipeweed, he has the good stuff, Longbottom Leaf. It's curious indeed that Saruman is so condescending towards the halflings, and yet even he isn't too good for their pipeweed. I just think that's, hmm, a little bit interesting. There's a great healing power that comes from the wholesome nourishment of food and cheer and song, as Tolkien is popularly quoted. Aragorn marvels at the sight of Merry and Pippin, remarking that, indeed, you look in the bloom of health. In this chapter, the hobbits also tell the story of the Ents overtaking Isengard, which is an incredible sight to have seen. They also talk about how Grima has been returned to Saruman to await Gandalf. 
And as this chapter comes to an end, everyone is feeling refreshed and nourished for the journey ahead. So a lot of this chapter is just friends kind of catching up and putting together the pieces of what's been going on so that they can all understand better. And Tolkien is kind of filling in gaps in the narrative. The idea of wholesome nourishment is underscored by the power of the Ents over Saruman. Nature is stronger than the machine, despite what anyone would want you to believe. It still is. And wholesome nourishment can be more healing than man-made comforts or powers. Saruman and Sauron find comfort in dominion, and yet hobbits find comfort in a hearty meal with friends. Chapter 10, The Voice of Saruman. The companions pass through the ruins of Isengard where they meet up with Gandalf. Together with Theoden and the men of Rohan, they travel to the foot of Orthanc to speak with Saruman. As they approach him, Gandalf warns him to beware of his voice. Gandalf, Aragorn, Theoden, Legolas, and Gimli approach the door of Orthanc to speak with Saruman. He comes to the rails and speaks with him, and it's true, his very voice is dangerous. It's an enchantment. Tolkien writes, It is low and melodious. It's very sound and enchantment. It seemed wise and reasonable. Saruman's voice flatters and thralls, enchants and comforts, yet he's always doing this with the purpose of controlling you. He first attempts to enchant and influence Theoden, trying to convince him that he was the only one who could aid him. Then, when Theoden rejects Saruman's advances, he moves on to Gandalf. However, ultimately, his efforts prove unsuccessful because, as Gandalf points out later, the power of his voice is lessened. Saruman speaks in this cunning flattery, and yet, um, when he can tell that it's not going well, he lashes out in rage whenever he's challenged or rejected. Gandalf ultimately overpowers him, breaking his staff but leaving him alive and placing Isengard under the care of the Ents. Over and over and over again, we see Gandalf emphasize mercy. And this is one of the biggest differences between Gandalf and Saruman. Saruman seeks dominion over all others, working to manipulate them for the purposes of his own will. And yet Gandalf seeks to guide others, working for the good and freedom of all. This kind of goes back to the difference between machine and enchantment. Saruman has fully embraced the machine, whereas Gandalf has stayed faithful to the whole idea and principle of enchantment and um, counseling people rather than controlling them. I do not wish for mastery, says Gandalf. The voice of his evil contrasts sharply against the voice of truth, and yet those under Saruman's enchantment struggle to tell the difference at first. However, once his spell was broken and his power was taken away, the men of Rohan are able to stand firmly against him and his lies. Saruman is fueled by this lust for power, and he's driven in a lot of ways by his hatred for any who may stand in his way. And as he's been seeking dominion, he has lost all respect for any living thing really lost respect for anything. This is honestly what leads to his demise. Gandalf remarks that Saruman has been used by Sauron, calling him an unhappy fool who now lives in terror of the shadow of Mordor. Often does hatred hurt itself, he reflects. And then one last note on this chapter, a really funny thing that Saruman said, at least I thought it was funny, is when Saruman is yelling at Gandalf, he says, come back when you are sober. Like as if he thinks Gandalf is like, under the influence of some kind of alcoholic beverage. Um, it's very funny to me. I love that Tolkien added it in because I don't know. It, it felt so modern to me. Chapter 11, The Palantir. After leaving Saruman and Isengard under the watch of the Ents, the Ents who, um, if you'll pay attention, are like, yeah, for we're never going to let him get out of here. There's absolutely no way. Just keep that in mind as we keep reading. We'll see what happens. 
Oh, and one thing we forgot to mention from the last chapter is Wormtongue throws this mysterious, like, globe stone out of Orthanc as they're leaving. And this clearly upsets Saruman because they hear a shriek coming from his tower. So now Gandalf is carrying that stone. But but first, Pippin had picked it up. So Pippin picks it up. Gandalf is like, oh boy, I'll take that. Don't worry about it, Pippin. But Pippin can't stop thinking about it because, you know, he's a curious little took. So curiosity overwhelms him. And in the night, Pippin takes it from Gandalf as he sleeps. As he looks into the stone, Pippin quickly regrets it because he cries out and he falls to the ground, which awakens the entire camp. With difficulty, then, Pippin recounts his experience with the stone, which we understand as being the Palantir. And he reveals that Sauron now believes Pippin has the ring and thinks he's an Isengard and is going to send for him at once. Despite the possibility that this could have gone horribly wrong, Gandalf gathers that no harm has actually come from this foolishness, and it's actually going to work out in their favor because now they understand the mind of Sauron a little bit more. Um, One of the Nazgul is suddenly seen flying across the sky, and at this, Gandalf realizes that they need to stop putzing around and they need to speed things up. So Gandalf takes Pippin and they ride swiftly away towards Minas Tirith. As they ride, Gandalf explains the nature of the Palantiri to Pippin, and he reveals to him that they are traveling to Minas Tirith. So the funny thing about this chapter is that what could have resulted in grave peril or absolute ruin has instead offered Gandalf an unwarranted insight into the mind of Sauron and has given them a little bit of an upper hand. Not a lot, but it's worked in their favor, which is incredibly surprising. So then he uses this information to act swiftly, and he takes Pippin and they are riding towards Minas Tirith as the book comes to a close. So a little reflection on book three. Book three of The Lord of the Rings brings about many changes for the members of the now broken fellowship. A lot of this book feels like atonement for past mistakes. For Boromir, he is paid with his life. For Aragorn, he seems desperate to discern the correct path forward. Um, but as the book goes on, he feels more confident and he, he does seem to know that he's making the right choices. For Theoden, he has finally been freed from Grima's influence. For Saruman, the Ents have brought about his well-deserved destruction. And in all of this, Gandalf has returned against all hope. All of the pieces which were set in the Fellowship of the Ring are now in motion, and the War of the Ring is fully in swing. This phrase, the turn of the tide, really um, is a good way to describe this whole book. So with all of that, I think that is pretty good for our discussion of book three. I look forward to seeing as many of you as would like in our Discord server as we're going to chit-chat about what's going on. We could talk about our favorite passages, any questions we have, any themes we want to expand on um, throughout this month. Before we go, I would also like to take a minute to thank our generous patrons for supporting what we do here at Tea with Tolkien. It's been a while since I've said thank you to our newest patrons, and we've got quite a few, so I wanted to take a moment to do that now. Thank you so much to Scott, Hannah, Rachel, Dawn, Lisa, Heather, Brian, Katie, Miranda, Michelangelo, which is my dad, Margaret, Daniela, Ellie, Anne, and Gabriel. Thank you guys so much for becoming patrons. I am so appreciative of your support, and it helps me pay for things like the website fees and um, like podcast hosting fees and stuff like that. So I really appreciate it, and 
it wouldn't be possible without you guys. I'm also going to be providing a transcript of this episode to all of our patrons, so if you feel like you'd like to support Tea with Tolkien and you would benefit from having all of these notes in written form, please consider joining us. You can learn all about our Patreon tiers and different benefits at patreon.com slash teawithtolkien. I also wanted to give a shout out to our most active members in our Discord server, smurphy115, Gideon, Riri, Maggie, and Spinner of Trails. You guys are... Um, you can see on our little leaderboard on there that you guys are the most active and like highest ranked in our discord server. So I just wanted to give you a shout out. I really appreciate all of the time that you put into making our community great. And I'm so glad that you feel at home in our discord. If you'd like to join our discord, you can get the link sent to your inbox by signing up for our book club at twithtolkencom book dash club. Okay. I'm so sorry. This episode is so long. I hope you'll have a wonderful day, a lovely All Saints Day, if you're listening on the day this episode drops, and I will see you on December 1st with a discussion of book four, the second half of The Two Towers. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I will see you all over in the Discord. (laughs) 